Empire must constantly reconfigure strategy and battle to win hearts and minds both domestically and internationally. Empire is not a cemented structure, but a process. It relies on racism, I argue, to reproduce itself. Moreover, Empire does not automatically produce or secure exploitative and exclusionary racial regimes. This is what explains why race is constantly shifting and evolving, why projects of race-making, unmaking, and remaking are always in process. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to our discussion this evening. My name is Jaspir Poir. I'm a writer and a professor at Rutgers University. I am so extremely pleased to be moderating this event on September 11th, which doubles as a launch for Deepa Kumar's revised second edition of her highly acclaimed book, Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire. Um, this is an especial privilege for me, as Deepa is a friend uh, with whom I have the pleasure of uh, working and scheming at Rutgers. Um, the events of the past month have uh, forced again a kind of reckoning with the horrifying uh, quote-unquote conclusion of a war that was deliberately designed through its preemptive targeting never to end. So on this eve of the 20th anniversary, I am reminded that the months following September 11th were terrifying in its consensus demanding force, especially because it seemed to work. For all of the debates about fascism during the Trump years, the war on terror handily garnered uh, bipartisan support. I began my job at Rutgers University in the Women's and Gender Studies Department only one year prior to 9-11, and had I needed a sharp reminder of the failures of second wave and liberal feminisms, I found it not long after uh, September 11th when I returned to my department to experience the near universal feminist approval of unfolding events. And thus began a slow reckoning with the Orientalism of gender studies, a field that had by and large institutionalized veiling as a trope of women's oppression. The affective heaviness of those months and years have given way to a saturated normalization of the security state. The, if you see something, say something, lateral surveillance recruitment of ever alert civilians. I have often reflected on the kind of historical amnesia that normalizes so much of what at the time we understood as states of exception. The Patriot Act, the INS special registration, the Bush Doctrine, the preemptive deportations and indefinite detentions. In other words, how the law authorizes itself to break the law, if not transcend the realm of the legal altogether. The war on terror had, in my estimation, largely receded into the rationalized psyche of American imperialism, 
Indeed, one crucial mechanism of empire is the sublimation of its own subject production. And in that sense, the amnesia is twofold in that empire naturalizes post 9-11 securitization while also mobilizing American exceptionalism to claim the absolute necessity of the war on terror, done in part by erasing the history of US imperialism. Deepa's comprehensive book shakes this amnesia, taking us from 14th century Spain to the contemporary moment, showing us the overlapping interfaces and connected histories and geographies of Orientalism, of Islamophobia, and of anti-Muslim racism. Um, and in this book, she elaborates very succinctly how Islamophobia animates the core of the U.S. imperial security state such that it disappears into the commonsensical discourses and mandates of safety against the figuration of quote-unquote terrorist violence. In its liberal guises, Kumar argues, Orientalist troops are denounced while the quote-unquote Muslim remains an appropriate target for surveillance and securitization. Charting the long durée of Islamophobia from the rise of neocon production of the Islamic threat during the Cold War, the 1993 attack on the World Trade Center and beyond, Kumar convincingly argues that 9-11 made possible the suturing of the neocon and the neoliberal, and that this suturing confers the Islamic terrorist as an especial global threat. Kumar's scholarship thus importantly refutes the framing of 9-11 as a watershed moment, even as it demonstrates the strategic convergences of what she calls liberal imperialism that it enabled. Just as important as the attention to history is the vast geopolitical scale of the book, a picture of how global the force of Islamophobia is from the disciplining of radical Black Muslim Americans to the detention of at least 100 million Uyghurs in China, to the Israeli occupation of Palestine. So today was the first day of a conference titled Dismantling Global Hindutva, which is sponsored by over 50 universities. Islamophobic right-wing Hindu organizations have sent more than 1 million emails to university officials demanding their withdrawal from their conference while organizers and speakers have received death threats, threats of sexual violence, threats to harm family members. In India, 200 million Muslims face increasing discrimination and expulsion from national belonging. Deepa has been involved with this conference and I hope she might speak a bit to the thickening convergence of US empire, of Hindutva, and also of Zionism, which is also history that she outlines in her book, in the propagation of Islamist threat. We can think of Islamophobia, therefore, as what Joy James calls accumulation by terror. Insofar as the state is a terrorizing entity, civilians are mobilized as trolls, and there is the profitability, both pecuniary and ideological, of creating terrorist bodies for liberal imperialism. So in terms of my own work, Deepa's book has helped me understand homonationalism as a form of soft power. Detailing the rep representational oscillation from the lascivious excesses of the Orient to the pathological repression of sexuality, Kumar demonstrates the malleability of a form of racism that is constantly shape-shifting in tandem with the needs of empire. 
Her analysis makes clear that there's simply no ideological room in liberalism to think otherwise, such that the oft um, posed queries, what about the women in Afghanistan or what about Muslim queers are thoroughly overdetermined questions, ones that many of us who teach gender studies have had to navigate yet again these past few weeks. The colonial refrain and liberal savior rhetoric of um, what Gayathri Spivak infamously um, once, once called, and, and Deepa reiterates this in the book, white men saving brown women uh, from brown men, and its homo-nationalist corollary, white queers saving brown queers from brown cisgender straight people, feel just as tenacious today as they did when they were first mobilized to justify the war on terror. In my view, we have only just begun to comprehend the homo-nationalist um, and also following Rahul Rao, the homo-capitalist forces of a purported secular queerness that produces coming out as a technology of Christian theological confession, one that organizes liberal agendas of visibility, rights, and sexual personhood, and hypocritically demands a reconciliation of Islam and sexuality through those very terms. It's also worth remembering that the toll of the war on terror is not just one of numbers of, numbers of deaths. Equally important are the numbers of people the war on terror has disabled and the health and well-being infrastructures that have been destroyed along the way. So this includes um, the essential but disposable laborers at ground zero, exploited in the name of returning to quote unquote business as usual, which is somewhat akin to the push, the current push towards post-pandemic normality. When the United States invaded Afghanistan on October 7th, 2001, it had already, it already had the largest amputee population um, in the world. In 2015, the Accessibility Organization for the Afghan Disabled estimated that some 10% of the population has been disabled during four decades of war. Omar Dawashi's book, Ungovernable Life, details the decimation of a robust Iraqi medical system due to U.S. sanctions and the rise in cancer, as well as in illnesses in newborns due to the toxic after effects of two Gulf Wars. So these examples and more, we could talk about Yemen, we could talk about Syria, where it's estimated that up to 30,000 people are disabled every month. Um, we could talk about Palestine. But these examples remind us that the terrorist body is therefore far from only a representational project. It is also a eugenics project, a corporeal training through torture, through surveillance, and through disablement. So what have we learned? This is a prompt we were given for this evening's discussion. I have only questions, no certitude of what can be collectively claimed as having been learned. I wonder what happened to the anti-war movement that showed up for one of the largest protests in U.S. history just weeks before the 2003 invasion of Iraq. I wonder in the ensuing years, uh, with all of the debates about the legality of various forms of torture, of the denial of habeas corpus, of drone assassinations, if we accepted permanent war in exchange for a focus on war crimes, as if war itself is not a crime. Along with others, I wonder whether the expansion of the category of terrorism to include white nationalist violence 
has done us any good, for indeed Black Lives Matter has now been subjected to such designations. To the chagrin of those of us who have worked to deconstruct what terrorism is, it seems to me that the terrorist is all the more legitimized as a perpetrator of irrational, read, not political violence. So now I'm going to turn to introduce our panelists for this evening, um, all of whom are luminaries who actually need very little introduction. Um, first, we'll hear from uh, Deepa Kumar, who is an award-winning scholar and a social justice activist and professor of media studies at Rutgers University. Um, the first edition of Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire, which was published in 2012, has been translated into five languages. And she has authored more than 80 books, journal articles, book chapters, and news articles. And she also appears regularly on national and international news media outlets, such as the BBC, the New York Times, NPR, USA Today, at the Danish Broadcast Corporation, and Telesur. Uh, next, we'll have a comment from Nora Erekat, who is a human rights attorney an associate professor of Africana Studies at Rutgers University and the author of the amazing 2019 book, Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine, which received the Palestine Book Award and the Bronze Medal for the Independent Publishers Book Award. She's also produced uh, video documentaries, including Gaza in Context, and um, Black Palestinian Solidarity. She appears regularly on CBS News, CNN, Fox News, and NPR. And I will add, um, she provided incredible commentary on mainstream media during the uprisings uh, in Palestine earlier this year. Kianga Yamata Taylor is the author of Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Homeownership, which was a semi-finalist for the 2019 National Book Award and a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in History in 2020. She is also editor of How We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Kambahi River Collective, which won the Lambda Literary Award for LGBTQ nonfiction in 2018. She is a contributing writer at The New Yorker and a professor of African-American studies at Princeton University. Um, and then we will hear from Naomi Klein, who is the best-selling author of The Shock Doctrine, This Changes Everything, No Is Not Enough, and the young adult book, How to Change Everything, The Young Human's Guide to Protecting the Planet and Each Other. She is a senior correspondent for The Intercept, a Puffin Writing Fellow at Type Media Center, and Professor of Climate Justice at the University of British Columbia. So first we'll hear from Deepa about her book, then responses from Nora, Kianga, and Naomi, uh, after which point Deepa will respond briefly to responses, and then we'll open up for audience questions. So Deepa, I'm handing uh, this over to you now. Thank you so much, Jasbir, uh, for that comprehensive overview of the current moment, how various people, including yourself, have thought about it, learned so much from your work on homonationalism as well as the right to name. And thank you, too, to the amazing panelists who are part of this book launch. It is really such an honor to share a platform with such amazing scholars, authors, and activists. 
And thank you also to Haymarket Books for hosting this event and to Verso for publishing the second edition. It's really only fitting that a book originally published by Haymarket and which in its current form is half new and updated to the current moment should be launched by both presses. So thank you everyone who has made this event possible. Now, it is really unfortunate that my book is as relevant today as it was when it was first published. The disaster in Afghanistan, as Jasbir pointed out, has exposed U.S. imperialism for what it is. The U.S. went into Afghanistan claiming, among other things, to liberate Afghan women, as was just said. And of course, halfway through, it switched gears to claiming that the project was about democracy and national build nation building. As General Petraeus, the commander of the Afghan occupation, put it, he said soldiers are expected to be, quote, nation builders as well as warriors. Now, all of this is nothing but the white man's burden dressed up and packaged to be palatable in the 21st century. In reality, of course, 90% of U.S. expenses in Afghanistan went towards militarism and only 10% on infrastructure or so-called nation building. And by no means were women liberated. In fact, in the countryside where 70% of Afghans live and where 70% of women live, they were actually thrown from the frying pan into the fire because of the people who replaced the Taliban. These are uh, the warlords that the U.S. allied with who began the attack on women's rights in the first place after the, uh, after they defeated the Soviet Union. At any rate, um, all of this combined with the relentless violence has led to numerous deaths. As the award-winning journalist Anand Gopal explains in a brilliant new piece in The New Yorker, which I highly recommend, um, as he puts it, he says that every family he interviewed, and he spoke to a number of people in the countryside, explained how they know 10 to 12 people who have been killed by the U.S. in what Afghans call the American War. And not all these deaths have been counted. That is, typically what happens is that only the large deaths, you know, 52 people killed at a wedding party or what have you, get counted in the official statistics, whereas the ones, the twos and the threes are not even counted. And this is why human rights advocates like uh, Malalai Joya, who is the youngest woman of parliament in Afghanistan, puts the death toll over one million. In the end, this is one of the legacies of 20 years of the war on terror millions dead, tens of millions displaced, and trillions spent to supposedly keep Americans safe and the world safe. Underlying all of this, of course, is a deep-seated racism that is so ubiquitous, that is so taken for granted, that it isn't even legible as racism. And so what I set out to do in the book is to explain what anti-Muslim racism is, how it operates, and how it is not simply an ideology, but also a set of practices that sustain and help to reproduce empire. Now, the book begins in the early modern era in the 16th century, when anti-Muslim racism first emerged in Spain. 
Now, this is not to say that in the Middle Ages, there wasn't animosity towards Muslims. Um, certainly, you can trace that all the way back to the Crusades, the Reconquista. But what I argue is that anti-Muslim racism, as opposed to prejudice or animosity or what have you, begins in the era of modernity. And as various scholars have argued, race and racism really are modern concepts. So in the first chapter, I lay out the development and growth of anti-Muslim racism in the context of the system of mercantile imperialism led by Spain. So that's the first period, if you will. And later, anti-Muslim racism in the context of capitalist imperialism, which is led by Britain. And this chapter also outlines the development of colonial feminism or imperial feminism, which is born in the 19th century as a way to justify empire and which was revived again in the lead up to the Afghan war. In the next chapter, I turn to the United States. Um, Anglo settlers who came to occupy North America brought with them attitudes developed towards Muslims, particularly Ottomans in Britain. I draw on the work of various people to show how Native Americans and Muslims were coded in similarly derogatory ways. And Orientalism as a way of understanding the so-called Muslim world also traveled to North America and to the newly founded American Republic. The first significant Muslim population in the US were enslaved West Africans. Interestingly, the research shows that they actually occupied a liminal or in-between space between black and white because they were educated and therefore viewed as different from other enslaved West Africans. At any rate, the experience of racism uh, that enslaved black Muslims felt at that time was not based on their religion, but on their ability to perform labor, which of course was hyper-exploited by the plantation system. So the chapter lays out how there were contradictory attitudes towards Muslims. So, for instance, the women's suffrage movement adopted the Turkish bloomer, what we call today harem pants, as a symbol of resistance because they saw it as a masculine, uh, you know, uh, garment to wear. And so there were, you know, there's a lot of veneration, respect combined with hostility. But it was not until World War II that systematic racism against immigrant Muslims can be found. Um, this is not to say, of course, that immigrants from the Middle East and South Asia and so on didn't face discrimination. They did. They were excluded from citizenship in the U.S., which at least from 1790 onwards was only possible for white people. But this was actually part of an earlier system of white supremacy that impacted even Italians, the Irish, Eastern Europeans and others who then got accepted into whiteness. It is the U.S.'s rise as an imperial power on the world stage after World War II, I argue, that really began the process that would lead in the 50s, 60s and 70s to a systems, system where Arabs and later Iranians and South Asians were seen as racialized terrorist threats who must be controlled by the national security state. 
However, it's important to note that surveillance and the terrorization of black Muslims actually goes back a few decades to the 1930s when the targeting of the followers of the Moorish Science Temple of America uh, took place to quite an extent, and it continued with the persecution of the Nation of Islam, Malcolm X, and others. So the key argument then in the first two chapters, as well as the rest of the uh, book, is that empire in various forms has served as the crucible of anti-Muslim racism. Spanish, British, French, and American imperialisms have all been important vehicles for the development of anti-Muslim racism, each of course with their own specific national characteristics and variations. And racism in turn has sustained empire, right? So it's a mutually uh, collaborative, mutually beneficial kind of relationship. Now, the rest of the book is about U.S. imperialism and anti-Muslim racism, and I won't go through each chapter, but I'll just lay out a few of the key arguments. First, I argue that Islamophobia is best understood, as others have, as racism rather than religious intolerance. While uh, Muslims and those who look uh, Muslim in the U.S. around the world, when, I'm sorry, when Muslims and those who look Muslim in the U.S. as well as around the world are subject to systematic modes of oppression from surveillance to detention, torture, and the denial of human rights, including the right to life, what is at work is not religious misunderstanding or intolerance, but structural racism. It is important to name Islamophobia as racism because what is being done to Muslims is similar, I argue, to other projects of racialization from settler colonialism to slavery on down. So that's one of the arguments. Second, I argue that Islamophobia isn't simply the product of fringe right-wing elements, but exists in liberal and conservative forms. Now, we all know that Donald Trump's presidency was the most Islamophobic in U.S. history. It legitimated far right-wing racism and gave wind to blatant and overt racism. But racism in its more covert and liberal form is just as pernicious, I would argue. Liberal Islamophobia, what is it? It is about using human rights, women's rights, free speech, gay rights, which uh, Jasbir has written about, democracy, and other liberal principles to shore up racism and imperialism. And free speech, as people know, has become a cover to spout anti-Muslim racism, as we've seen in the various cartoon controversies in Europe. It is important, I argue, to expose not just blatant right-wing racism, but also racism in its covert and liberal forms. Importantly, right-wing Islamophobia exists on a continuum with liberal and conservative variants, and its adherents sit very comfortably within the imperial state. Third, the project of terrorist racial formation emerges from empire. Empire and crisis in the late 1960s and the strategic partnership with Israel, particularly after 1967, gave rise to the global Arab terrorist as a threat to democracy. 
And as new threats emerge to empire, this flexible category of terrorists began to incorporate these other threats. After the Iranian revolution, Iranians were included. Then came the Islamic uh, terrorist threat and South Asians were included in the 1990s and so forth. I have two chapters on the foreign policy establishment on how the Islamic threat has served imperial aims and ambitions. And I argue that imperial ethnocentric racism categorizes people as good or bad Muslims, good or bad Arabs or Iranians or South Asians based on whether they support or oppose US imperialism. Now you see this not just in the foreign policy sphere, you see this in news media reporting as well as in cultural products. So for instance, if you look at the show Homeland, which was fantastically popular, most of the characters who are Muslim are bad Muslims. But there is a good Muslim character, an employee of the CIA, but she must again and again prove her loyalty to empire and forward the aims of the war on terror. This is how liberal anti-Muslim racism functions. It includes racialized others only to the extent that they are willing to be agents of empire. Fourth argument, race is not simply a category of classification or differentiation, but rather a construct that emerges from practices of racism. Thus, while Orientalism has a long history in the US, as well as other European nations, it is a protean ideology that exhibits both veneration as well as vilification. Significantly, Orientalism is not always tied to systems of oppression like colonialism or imperialism. And what my analysis shows is that there is no straight line from the Spanish Inquisition to the torture regime of Abu Ghraib. Even while various projects of racialization draw on the past, an attempt to fix this thing such as race is existing across all time. In fact, there are no unbroken lines of continuity. And so anti-racists, I argue, should avoid falling into the trap of, effect, of accepting the fictive concept of race in its trans-historical and essentializing modes of articulation. Thus, the book sets out to explain how historical context shapes various projects of racialization amidst variance and change. That is to say, races are made at particular moments to suit larger political and economic and social agendas. Now this variance actually is also explained by the fact that there is no singular West. So I've tried to avoid the trap of homogenizing the West, a region actually whose boundaries keep changing based on imperial dynamics. Moreover, and more importantly, nations that are considered part of the West consist of populations that are both sympathetic to colonialism and imperialism, as well as resistive to it. Fifth, empire must constantly reconfigure strategy and battle to win hearts and minds, both domestically and internationally. Empire is not a cemented structure, but a process. It relies on racism, I argue, to reproduce itself. Moreover, Empire does not automatically produce or secure exploitative and exclusionary racial regimes. This is what explains why race 
is constantly shifting and evolving, while projects of race-making, unmaking, and remaking are always in process. And so it's not enough to simply say that empire is the crucible of anti-Muslim racism, but to explain why, how, and when. Sixth, and finally, resistance matters. Resistance in countries headed by US-backed dictators or client states can disrupt imperial aims and create the conditions for solidarity as well as resistance in the imperial center. We saw this happen in the 1960s and 70s with the anti-Vietnam War movement. We saw another moment like this when the so-called Arab Spring uh, emerged in the in 2011. Uh, protesters in the US in Madison, Wisconsin carried signs, fight like an Egyptian, showing the incredible solidarity and the understanding that we're all part of a regime that the Occupy Wall Street movement called a regime that benefits the 1% and one that does not benefit the 99%. So I have a term called the matrix of anti-Muslim racism that, it, that tries to capture this fluidity to explain the struggle for hegemony, as it were, as a process right? And it studies various spheres from the political sphere to think tanks, the academy and the media to show how anti-Muslim racism is both produced as well as resistance, resisted. Finally, anti-Muslim racism, I argue, is not a permanent character, characteristic in the West. It is not encoded into the DNA of its people and its culture, and therefore we can fight to end it. My book is not just a scholarly contribution, but an offering and a call to action to end racism and empire. And so I will end with the words of the playwright Bertolt Brecht, who offers some very sage advice who, for anyone who wishes to take up the call to resistance. He says, quote, it takes a lot of things to change the world, anger and tenacity, science and indignation, the quick initiative, the long reflection, the cold patience and the an infinite perseverance, the understanding of the particular case and the understanding of the ensemble. Only the lessons of reality can teach us to transform reality. Thank you. I'm going to turn it over to Nora now. Thank you, Deepa. Thank you so much for that overview and especially um, the end of laying out for us a road, an intellectual roadmap as well as a political one um, to resistance and freedom. Um, it's an honor to be here with this set of panelists whom I actually see every day because they sit on my bookshelf. So it's nice to see your faces as well. <laughs> Earlier this week, we witnessed one of the most epic prison breaks of our time. Six Palestinian political prisoners used spoons to dig a hole out of one of Israel's most notorious prisons. In that moment, we witnessed how determination and faith that what is is not what must be. Six prisoners overcame the only nuclear power in the Middle East and global empire self-proclaimed unique ally with a set of spoons. Notably, four of the six were serving a life sentence. Six of the six are considered terrorists by Israel's military, political, and judicial branches. And I should say that two of the six 
Ya'ub Qudwa and Mahmoud Ardi have since been recaptured in Nazareth. May they be protected. In practice and without convictions, Israel has racialized Palestinians as always already guilty. Their crime is their existence and the threat they pose even when they are sleeping or idle at age seven or 37 is to Zionist settler sovereignty. Yet the moniker of terrorists sticks to us. Even as Israeli warplanes bombard the besieged population of Gaza for 11 straight days as they did this past May, even as they wipe out 12 whole families from the population registry as they sheltered in their homes, even as we witness children being pulled out from beneath the rubble remains of their homes, Palestinians remain the terrorists. This reflects a cornerstone of anti-Muslim racism in the context of imperial violence. Terrorism has no juridical meaning in international law. The lack of a definition reflects a political contest over whether state actors can commit terrorism or instead if their casualties in combat are strictly collateral damage, regardless of the carnage, of the recklessness, or the deliberate nature of their strikes. So while we may assume that terrorism refers to the targeting of civilians for the sake of achieving a political purpose, in fact, it is restricted to a particular group of people rather than to a set of behaviors. There is no longer, this is no longer just a battle over legitimate versus illegitimate violence. That battle raged throughout the 1960s and culminated in the 1977 additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions that recognized guerrilla fighters as soldiers. A victory for the non-aligned movement and the third world more generally. The terrorist today is akin to the pirate of the 18th century, an enemy of all humanity. This enemy is racialized as many things that are subsumed into the category of Muslim. And in the context of Pax Americana, Israel is the easternmost border protecting Western civilization against them. Within nine days of September 11, 2001, former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was testifying before the U.S. Government Reform Committee when he told a panel of U.S. representatives, each one of us today understands that we are all targets, that our cities are vulnerables, that our values are hated with an unmatched fanaticism that seeks to destroy our societies and our way of life. I am certain that I speak on behalf of my entire nation when I say today, we are all Americans in grief as in defiance. Netanyahu went on to collapse Hamas, Islamic Jihad, Yasser Arafat, and nearly all Palestinians with Al-Qaeda, and further reified an inner circle of the global American, or us, and the insufferable outsiders who are not only not American, but beyond humanity altogether, them. This was a move towards reconfiguring a global national security map, thus defining who was the nation, who was the threat, and what security could look like. Professor Deepa Kumar's second and fully revised book, Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire, is a remarkable ex uh, exposition of these entwinements between the social construction of race and imperial violence. Professor Kumar offers us a thorough analysis on the inextricable relationship between war making and race making. She highlights the limitations of understanding Islamophobia as a mere site of affect towards Muslims and instead charts out to show that Muslims, albeit a religious category, have been racialized in a process that combines criminalization, 
hyper-surveillance, preemptory prosecution, homogenization, as well as the media's role in the construction of a moral panic. While Kumar highlights how these processes have accelerated since 9-11, she shows that the seeds for this have been laid since the uh, late 15th century, as Spanish and Portuguese empires began to chart the seas in pursuit of their imperial ambitions. She also traces how this racialization process was entwined with colonial ambitions and its requisite violence. And this is not to say that the seeds are a direct line, as Professor Kumar highlighted for us just now, but to say that there were several iterations at different moments, all entwined with empire. And here, Kumar rightly draws on the richness of Arab American studies. Scholars like Nadine Nebet, who foregrounds the second edition of the book with a critical look at Egypt today, where the military regime, the second largest recipient of US support in the Middle East after Israel, weaponizes terrorism as a threat to squash dissent. In her body of work, Professor Nebet has demonstrated how Arabs in the United States continue to benefit from probationary US citizenship, contingent on endless US US war making in the Middle East. Professor Sarah Gaultieri has done similar work and among her contributions is an illuminating article demonstrating that the seeds for Edward Said's seminal work on Orientalism were actually planted in his experience as an Arab in the United States following the 1967 war that resulted in Israeli imperial control of Egyptian, Syrian, and even more Palestinian lands. The lesson Kumar instills is that Western civilization's relationship to Islam has been mediated by the politics of empire, whether that made Muslims equal during the height of the Ottoman Empire or made Muslims a latent and global threat to humanity in the post-911 era. I'd like to build on her chapter titled Terrorizing Muslims, Domestic Security and the Racialized Threat. There, Kumar examines the U.S.'s global war on terror. A war lacking geographic and temporal boundaries, aimed primarily at the peoples of the Middle East, but has stretched from Somalia to Yemen and as far east as the Philippines. She then demonstrates how the war, its proponents, its military leaders, political art architects, and associated weapons and security technology profiteers exist in dialectical relationship to race making, primarily through law enforcement and mainstream media of Muslims or those that look Muslim in the United States. What I would like to do is add to that essential discussion is a closer look at the ways in which racialized subjects have been constructed in Israeli jurisprudence with a direct impact on U.S. war making and how that legal work, in the words of Kumar, borrowing from Ruth Wilson Gilmore, increased, quote, vulnerability to premature death among not just Muslims, those who look Muslim, but all state dissidents, including black and indigenous protesters in the United States. In 2006, the Israeli High Court adjudicated the Public Committee Against Torture in Israel versus the Government of Israel, Pikati versus Israel, while it rejected the presumption of future involvement. So this case was about who can be targeted, um, who can be assassinated extrajudicially assassinated, which has been neutered and, and reframed as targeted killings, right? So the court is trying to figure out who is a legitimate target. The court rejected the presumption of a future involvement. You can't presume that somebody is going to be involved in an attack in the future based on their involvement in the past. But at the same time, it disregarded the temporal scope of Article 51 three of the additional protocols, which created a temporal limitation. Instead, it says, it 
the, the temporal limitation is that some a civilian can become a direct participant in hostilities during such time as they are carrying their weapons. And in this court decision, Israeli judiciary removed that temporal scope so it was no longer necessary that the accused civilian be carrying any weapons or be prepared to carry out an attack. The court reasoned that membership in a designated terrorist organization is a continuous combat function and therefore sufficient for denying a civilian his immunity. It replaces a combat determination with a status determination. In effect, a military commander does not need to ask what the alleged terrorist is doing at the time that he is targeted in order to kill him, just that he is a member of a designated terrorist group designated by primarily the United States, um, Israel, and often the European Union. This designation, this judicial reasoning, literally shrinks the scope of who is a civilian in the language of the laws of war. Armed forces can kill a civilian designated as a member of a terror organization, even when he is not a threat because his membership status creates a presumption of direct involvement. At the heart of this legal reasoning is a justification for the use of preventive Force, kill them before they ever get the chance to become a threat. This is even more dangerous in the context of Gaza, where Hamas is the governing authority, thus rendering all public buildings like hospitals and institutions like the Ministry of Health and employees like the police cadets who were attacked by an aerial strike in December 2008 during their graduation ceremony with their families and audience. The United States. And about uh, five years later, relied on and cited Israel's legal decision and its DOJ memo on targeted killing or extrajudicial assassination. On that basis, it launched a drone strike and assassinated Anwar al-Awlaqi, an American citizen then based in Yemen. Al-Awlaqi was accused of being a member of Al-Qaeda Arabian Peninsula, whose sermons allegedly incited others to violence against the United States. The United States denied him due process and justified his killing as a lawful act of war. Thus highlighting one, how the accusation of terrorism dramatically expands guilt by association. Two, how the victim's racialized identity has facilitated this expansion of violence precisely because they are always already presumed guilty and expected to die. And three, how racial logics flow through circuits of empire. Note that these logics cannot and are not reversed to apply to Israeli or US military or political leaders or to any imperial military or political leaders. I'll close with a question to Deepa, if I may, as well as all the panelists. In my most recent work, and this is something that you've already addressed now in your closing, but something that I continue to think about and, and, and think it would be worthwhile for us to think about collectively. In my most recent work, I've been researching racial theory as, it is, as it's been developed and advanced by Palestinian intellectuals and advocates leading up to the 1975 UN resolution declaring Zionism as a form of racism and racial discrimination. What I found was more ambiguity than clarity in regard to what race and racism actually is. It's clear from the record that racism better understood as racial capitalism as a technology for organizing power, which is distinct from anti-blackness. But racial capitalism also appears as synonymous and even interchangeable with imperial domination, as white supremacy was embedded in the League of Nations charter, its structure, and its organization um, and domination of the territories of the vanquished Turkish and German empires. And while the Convention for the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination offers 
offers a broad definition of racial discrimination, it leads it actually leaves the category of race itself amorphous and ill-defined. I found this issue to become pressing for me yet again as I read this excellent book as well, um, where Deepa shows us that a re- how a religious group has been racialized. It makes pressing for us to think again, what does racial analysis do for us in particular? I think that Deepa has made it abundantly clear that it informs our strategies uh, for resistance and it shows that this is something that changes across time and is never static, but is something that has been built and can be disappeared and reconstructed in different ways because there is no straight line. There are, however, also risks. For example, can racism be overly used as a stand-in for other forms of socially constructed hierarchies without specific attention to racial ones? Perhaps another way to think about this is to accept that an actual definition of racism is secondary to a group's actual lived experiences. These are things I think about and I hope to think about with you. Thank you again, Deepa, for an excellent contribution. Thank you uh, for the opportunity to be in discussion with you all. And I look forward to hearing the rest of the comments. Kianga is up. Cool. Um, Thank you uh, for the invitation to join this um, amazing uh, group of people, all of whom um, I have learned from and uh, intellectually uh, look up to. I've known Deepa for um, forever, for many, many, many years. Uh, (laughs) And you know, in many ways, I, I wrote a book from Black Lives Matter to uh, to Black Liberation that poured out very quickly because it was a culmination of uh, thinking and organizing over a long period of time. And uh, Deepa's book reads in the, the the same way that these are questions and um, uh, political commitments and issues that uh, we have not only researched and thought about, but have been uh, at the center uh, of organizing um, activism in, in response to the crisis created by that. And so, um, you know, I just, I think it's a tremendous, uh, a, it was a tremendous achievement when the book first came out. Uh, it is even more so, um, and tragically, as you point out, uh, continues to be relevant and necessary. Um, and so uh, I just appreciate the opportunity to be able to uh, be here with all of you to celebrate the book, but to also um, talk about the the, the politics um, of this moment. Um, I want to talk about uh, the war at home, um, at least one aspect of it that uh, is is born out of this moment. Um, and I want to do that uh, by looking um, backward before nine uh, eleven and what was happening, particularly. Um, in African-American politics. I think that many of us know um, uh, or should know uh, that at the end of the 1990s, uh, there was a rising movement uh, against um, globalization. Uh, People may have heard of or uh, those of us uh, who um, are maybe older, I don't know, uh, I, don't, I don't know how to categorize myself anymore, um, will have been around for the battle uh, in Seattle in 1999, uh, gatherings uh, against um, uh, corporate, you know, uh, 
the, the, the global corporate class in uh, Washington, D.C. And um, I think that it's understood that uh, when the attacks on 9-11 happened, that those kinds of mobilizations that were not just happening in the United States, but were happening uh, around uh, the world, um, really be- came to a halt. Uh, that that emergent movement um, was essentially destroyed uh, by the, uh, the the jingoism um, uh, uh, and the, the warmongering that came as a result of 9-11. Um, I want to argue that a similar dynamic happened uh, in the development of an uh, important movement against racism, uh, anti-Black racism in particular, um, in the uh, in the U.S. Uh, in this moment, um, and really delays uh, the emergence of uh, a movement against racism for a decade, uh, and that is uh, what began as a movement um, against racial profiling um, in the 1990s. In the aftermath of the LA rebellion in, in 1992, uh, people will know that. Unlike the 1960s, the response wasn't an expansion uh, of the uh, welfare state. It was uh, the um, expansion of the criminal justice state. Uh, The crime bill was the response to uh, the uprising in Los Angeles in 1992. Um, And and the crime bill, of course, is uh, voted into Um, or signed into existence by Bill Clinton uh, in 1994. And by 1995, the overreach uh, of that crime bill and the confidence with which it imbued uh, the police was evidenced by a new phenomenon uh, discussed among uh, uh, civil rights organizers and activists on the streets, which was racial profiling. Um, This is really when the, the language of racial profiling um, comes into common usage. Uh, it was also described as driving while black. There was a study that was uh, produced. Um, I can't remember if it was the NAACP or its legal uh, uh, arm, but that essentially showed that along Interstate 95 uh, from uh, the north, um, uh, beginning in uh, New Jersey, New York, and down through the southern quarter, uh, the black people, black drivers, were multiple times more likely to be stopped than anyone else. Uh, and it created such a, uh, a, a crisis, a political uh, emergency, because, of course, this is uh, 1995. It was the year before uh, Clinton's uh, re-election in 1996 that C- Bill Clinton is compelled to create a commission to study the effects of, uh, of, of racial profiling. Um, And so this is put on the map as uh, an issue that Black activists need to take up, think about um, seriously. Uh, It begins to expand beyond the issue uh, of of driving, of driving while Black. Abner, the the sexual assault, the racist attack on Abner Louima by New York City police in 1997 uh, provoked a national outcry Uh, and marches uh, uh, across the Brooklyn Bridge um, in New York City in 1997. Two years later, the assassination of Amadou Diallo, who was shot at 41 times by uh, police and struck with 19 bullets. Uh, That also represented an escalation in uh, uh, tactics, direct action uh, tactics to 
bring shame and attention on uh, the, the, the New York City um, Police Department. In 2001, in August of 2001, in Cincinnati, uh, a, a rebellion exploded in the response to the police murder uh, of Timothy Thomas. And these were somewhat disparate over a, a course of four years, but all within the, the, the framework of a rising consciousness about uh, uh, police overreach, police brutality, uh, and the different kinds of tactics police would engage in. Uh, and it, it, it corresponded with an escalation in uh, political tactics in response, from marches to direct action uh, to open rebellion um, in the streets. Months, weeks after the uh, uprising in Cincinnati, 9-11 um, happens, and there are several consequences um, uh, to, to this. I mean, the four that uh, are most striking to me uh, are the way uh, in which it instantly normalizes and legitimizes the tactic of racial profiling. So that, that had been specifically uh, um, marked by Black activists as uh, uh, this kind of um, uh, extra legal policing tactic based purely on race and speculation uh, that had been discredited, that had uh, activists had forced Bill Clinton to call one of these ceremonial uh, uh, um, uh, commissions to study the issue was now instantly overnight uh, seen as uh, uh, legitimate. Um, the, the, the second thing, was the glorification uh, of police. Now, obviously, police have held a heralded uh, position um, in uh, uh, American society over the course of the, uh, uh, over, or really in the post-World War II uh, era, but this was different. Police were uh, uh, deified as soldiers. They were seen as soldiers. The language of first responders is really introduced uh, into, um, uh, into the mainstream. And part of what that does is the third point, uh, which is the normalization of a militarized public. Um, initially, this was the site of armed soldiers in New York City uh, with military-grade weapon displayed uh, that was uh, uh, excused as some kind of public deterrent uh, to other potential terrorist attacks. Um, but it quickly transformed, not necessarily into soldiers occupying the streets of American cities, but of police becoming soldierized, police becoming uh, departments, becoming the recipients of massive military uh, style uh, 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 weaponry. Um, to really underline the idea that the war was at home. And that, um, as, as Jessabir said uh, in her remarks, uh, the, the whole security apparatus, the see something, say something, um, that we were all deputized uh, to find the terrorists uh, 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 among us. And within that normalization of policing and militarization comes the normalization of the surveillance state, of the security state, and all of the uh, uh, attendant practices that go along uh, um, that go along with that, and then finally is the the legitimization of racism itself, uh, and the 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 idea that 
in this moment, it was okay to treat Muslims, Arabs, as Nora says, anyone who looks Muslim or Arab with suspicion, and not just to look at them suspiciously, uh, but to detain them, uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to suspend the rules of habeas corpus uh, for these uh, people all in the name uh, of security. Uh, and one of the things that I think is Im important uh, about this is the way that uh, the American state uh, is able to enlist those who have historically been most suspicious of the American state in this effort. Um, and it, it was not long lasting, but black support flipped from opposition to racial profiling to support of racial profiling uh, for at least nine months after the September uh, 11th attacks as a legitimate tactic for police to again find the terrorists uh, find the terrorists among us. And so I think that one of the things that um, I, I, that is is an important uh, thing to 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 remember out of this uh, is not only the ways that these practices undermined solidarity and the idea that there is a kind of linked fate, a common struggle uh, amongst those of us uh, who suffer uh, uh, oppression based on race, based on um, ethnicity, but I think even more um, practical and fundamental for this is the way that the attacks that are trained on particular uh, and specific groups are never intended alone uh, for that group. That is the opening that the state uses to normalize and legitimize these practices. And we saw the ability of the state to pivot very quickly from focusing on Muslims and Arabs to then uh, um, uh, to, to the rehabilitation of these uh, tactics that allow for the normalization of stop and frisk, right? That allow for uh, the, the normalization of the, the state uh, to plan uh, and organize its suppression of the Occupy movement in the winter uh, of, of 2012 under the auspices of security under the auspices uh, of, um, uh, uh, of, yes, of, of, of security. And so I think that the solidarity in that sense um, is not just a moral question. Uh, it is a, a question of fundamental importance in understanding the ways that these are tactics that are intended to generally stop um, movements, that popular movements uh, from below. But they can never say that. And the opening is to attack uh, the group that is most vulnerable, but that we see the ability uh, for these state actors to very quickly uh, uh, pivot and use those practices more generally. Um, and then I think uh, the, the most recent uh, example of this is, of course, the way uh, that BLM during the Trump administration was casually defined uh, as terrorists. And while, you know, the media uh, focuses on the spectacle uh, of that uh, and the, the, the bombast of, uh, uh, of Trump's uh, language and his boorishness, the security agents 
the, the uh, state agencies use that as a pretext to actually initiate investigations, to actually uh, create new terms uh, of uh, uh, black extreme uh, um, identity groups, which becomes, which sounds utterly ridiculous, except in the hands of the FBI becomes a legitimizing tool to open investigations, to surveil people, uh, uh, and to, uh, to legally harass um, political uh, activists. And so in that way, I think when Deepa talks about the making and unmaking uh, of, of, of race, that we see how uh, those uh, have worked um, in symmetry with each other through this entire period uh, the, the, of the, the, the post 9-11 uh, era. And so the one question that I would pose um, to Deepa and anyone else is uh, how we think of what Deepa referred to then as the remaking uh, of race in, in this moment. And I think that when uh, we see the, uh, the, I'm thinking of this in terms of the kind of post 2020 uh, racial rebellion uh, against um, police brutality, against the uh, quote unquote systemic racism exposed uh, by uh, the, the, the pandemic alongside this uh, reaction to the U.S. withdrawal um, from Afghanistan, which I, I'm not I'm not quite sure how I understand uh, what I'm not sure I understand fully the the politics of uh, this reaction. We shouldn't leave, but the war was wrong. I'm not sure what any of these people uh, what any of these people mean, but how does that reframe uh, the people in Afghanistan and the racialization uh, of, uh, at the heart of uh, this war on terror in, in the U.S. and how the protests from last summer um, may complicate that with this ubiquitous language of systemic racism that no one ever identifies what system uh, is actually uh, at root. I just wonder how these two things um, may upend some of what has been common sense um, around these these particular issues over the last 20 years. Thank you. And thank you again for the invitation to join you guys. Wow. Um, hi, everyone. It's really great to be with you and just kind of mind blown from all of these incredible presentations. Um, and Deepa, congratulations and thank you uh, for this really magisterial work and a work that is grounding. And we are in a another one of these vertig vertiginous moments as we were after uh, the September 11th attacks. And and um those moments are ones when when folks are really, really vulnerable um, uh, because the the narratives have been scrambled. And it was, you know, my experience as an activist, having been part of the movements um, challenging global capital that were called the the anti-globalization movements, and we constantly correct, no, they're anti-capitalist. Um, uh, and and experiencing how, 
the uh, the 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 instrument of smearing us as terrorists was used so incredibly effectively and so quickly to destroy the movements. And I would I would just add uh, uh, the caveat in the global north um, because you know in 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 South America. Uh, in many countries, they became government. Uh, um, but it was the it was the terror of being called a terrorist that blasted apart the coalitions that came together in Seattle and in other cities. And it's always worth remembering that July uh, of 2001, a million people marched in Genoa against the G8. And on the day of the attacks on September 11th, 2001, Silvio Berlusconi, who was under intense um, criticism because a young uh, activist had been killed by the police in Italy immediately said the people who came up, who, who attacked us in Genoa are the same people who attacked the, 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 the World Trade Center. And there was this sort of um, kind of verbal confusion that we had, in fact, challenged the World Trade Organization. And here were the uh, World Trade Towers. And it was a little it was easy to conflate. Um, I always remember that one of the biggest trade unions that were that was part of the, the, the ultra globalization movement immediately pulled out and said, we can no longer be associated with these, uh, you know, black bloc anarchists. That's not on. These are the terrorists. But of course, you know, building on what Kianga was saying about what was happening in racial justice movements um, and the and the movements against uh, racial profiling and 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 all of that organizing, of course, we also have to remember that so many uh, of the most powerful anti-racism, racist organizers, anti-racism organizers and scholars were in Durban um, uh, when uh, uh, trying to fly home and finding their flights rerouted. Um, and the significance of Durban, um, you know, I see Nora nodding because, of course, I think it was such a significant moment in Palestinian resistance in the coming together of uh, of global black activism, um, the calls for BDS were emerging in Durban, and movements of the global South were joining the calls for reparation, um, uh, um, but for colonial land theft. Uh, and this was very, very powerful, very, very threatening. And in Durban, before September 11th, um, the the tool for dismissing and walking out of the Durban uh, uh, conference uh, uh, on racism was maligning all of this as being associated with terrorism and anti-Semitism. That was Colin Powell's excuse for walking out. Um, so it didn't all start on September 11th, this tactic by any means, as we know, um, but I just wanted to, to sort of bring that up a little bit. Um, and, and it relates to the part of Deepa's uh, remarkable book that I wanted to, to pull out uh, a little bit before we open it up. And we don't have as much time as we'd like, but um, and I'm not going to go on for too long. So we do have some, some time to, to take some of the questions. Um, but of course, Deepa traces the roots of anti-Muslim racism and Orientalism to early capitalist history. And I want to speak specifically about the role of enclosure of land held in common um, by peasantry uh, and indigenous people around the world, because this it relates very much to this um, 
hugely important demand that was coming out of the World Conference on Racism in Durban for reparations for slavery and colonial land theft. Um, and uh, we've already heard some discussion of, of the Ottoman Empire and what was um, and, the, and its strength and, and, and the relative weakness of Britain. A few factors shifted the balance of power as Deepa writes. And one of them was the practice of land enclosure, which really accelerated in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, first by simple force, then by legal decree, common land, as we know, was enclosed by fences and peasants who had been able to support themselves and engage in small scale trade were suddenly landless and pushed into poverty. Many were criminalized for petty theft, others forced to sell their labor for a wage to the landowning class. This is the moment of the emergence of capitalism, first agrarian capitalism in Britain, and then later industrial capitalism. And it's relevant to our discussion because enclosures required a theory of backwardness about the peasantry who were cast as undeserving of those common lands and also um, it required this theory of wasted land, the idea that the pastures and forests were being neglected, not used for their maximal efficiency, which was in this, according to this theory, tantamount to relinquishing the rights to use them. So before you see something, of course, it's always useful to say that it's being, quote unquote, wasted or neglected. And this is very, very profitable, as Deepa outlines in the book. Um, and these enclosures and their legal and moral rationales acted as a kind of a practice run for the land thefts by European colonial powers in the Americas. And of course, now race plays a much more central role. Indigenous landholders are cast as savages. Their agricultural practices, whether harvesting wild rice or planting corn, are willfully denied, un actively unseen by European settlers. And land is once again cast as empty or wasted and therefore uh, available for enclosure, very similar to the Israeli settler colonial discourse of making the deserts bloom. So this kind of uh, kind of agricultural violence, really, as a rationale for land theft. Race, once again, is deployed as rationale for the use of forced labor by enslaved Africans on those stolen lands. All of this produced enough excess capital to fuel the machinery of the Industrial Revolution. And this is inextricably linked with the climate crisis, because this same hierarchy of humanity that makes the argument for theft for extreme dominance of people is also applied to the land itself. Um, and we are living with the consequences, which maybe I'll come back to. Uh, in the US, Deepa shows that while Orientalism as an ideology had existed at least since the founding of the nation, it was really institutionalized after the US emerged as a global superpower after the Second World War. And now it is called uh, so-called modernization theory. And I have to say huge props to Deepa for wading through some of the most execrable writing uh, in the English language. Nobody should have to read this much modern, so-called um, modernization theory uh, or Huntington. Um, the cudgel of enlightenment is now rebranded as modernization. And this continues to be used as a rationale for tremendous violence and land grabs and other forms of resource theft, particularly of oil um, in majority Muslim countries. And this is before 9-11, but of course gets supercharged by um, the response to the 9-11 attacks. 
Um, and it's interesting to think about this promise of modernizing uh, um, uh, uh, so-called backward people as we look at what how that worked out in Afghanistan. And the U.S. has certainly modernized the weaponry and machinery of repression now in the possession of the Taliban. Um, I, you know, reported from uh, from Iraq uh, um, I, I, just a few months after the U.S. invasion and occupation, and of course the the, the anti-Muslim racism was was uh, visible at, at every level uh, of the occupation. But I was I just want to draw out one particular thing that was striking and that I explore in the Shock Doctrine at some length, and that was what was going on in the green zone. Um, so we know the ways, and, 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 and Deepa talks about the ways that, um, that, that anti-Muslim racism informed the torture tactics in Abu Ghraib, in, in, you know, was part of an indoctrination process for all U.S. soldiers. And of course, that comes home and mutates. Um, but I just like to talk about the 22-year-olds who were writing Iraq's budget inside the green zone, right? Or bringing in um, uh, uh, experts on economic shock therapy from Russia and Poland to go lecture the Iraqis about how they should impose shock therapy in their in Iraq um, because it had apparently worked so well um, in the former Soviet Union. And I always remember a conversation I had with a newly newly appointed Iraqi official, and he said, "Who do they think they? What do they think we were doing?" During our exile, we were reading The Guardian. We know what happened <laughs> in Russia. Why would we listen to these criminals? Uh, so, you know, um, it, 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 at every level, uh, it informed uh, um, the, the, the debacle the, the, uh, of the occupation. Um, and yeah, I said I would just come back to, to, to climate change and, and, and do just just want to add just one more layer here, because it is worth noting that many majority Muslim nations are among the hottest and most arid in the world, and therefore the most vulnerable to global heating. These are countries that have very little water and a lot of oil. And that combination um, leads to drought, it leads to invasions and occupations, and those converge uh, to drive forced displacement. So climate change and war and occupation is forcing millions to move uh, already, and many more are going to move on the way. And I think that Trump's Muslim ban should be seen in part in this context. So should Australia's offshore detention facilities, the EU's ongoing let them drown strategy in the Mediterranean. And as I was um, uh, rereading Adipa's work, I was um I was uh, my mind turned to Christchurch um, and the gruesome uh, mass murder anti uh, uh, um, by a by a by a racist killer whose name I won't mention, but who went into two mosques um, and opened fire and killed um, I, I, the final death tolls forty five um, Muslim people at worship. Um, he also defined himself while invoking the Great Replacement. Defined himself as um, an ethno-nationalist eco-fascist. As Professor Kumar makes so clear, racism surges when it is useful to capital. Um, and because of these converging crises, including the climate crisis and the mass displacement that comes with it, we are living in times when it is very useful indeed. Thank you.
thanks to all of you for these incredibly rich and expansive um, comments and responses. Uh, we don't have much time left, so we're going to go straight to questions from the audience. Um, the first question is from Edward Meltzer. Can you comment on the evangelical Christian church and their amplification of Islamophobia? Um, Deepa, do you want to begin comment on that question? Sure. I mean, first off, my gosh, what an incredible panel. I've learned so much from each of your comments and, of course, all of your uh, work. So thank you for that. Lots to think about. Um, just quickly, because I believe we have nine minutes left and I want to not monopolize all of it so others can come back on other aspects as well, which is the role of the evangelical Christian movement has been central to a configuration that I call the new McCarthyites. These are the people who are the extreme rabid racists, right? They are, there's, not, there's no nuance to what they're saying. Um, they have conspiracy theories about how all Muslims are fifth columnists and they wanna take over the US and institute Sharia law and so forth. They are very well organized. There are several groups that work together. The evangelical Christians are not alone. They work with a section of the neoconservative movement. They work with uh, Zionist groups. They work with uh, people who call themselves ex-Muslims. These are folks from the Middle East and South Asia um, who basically, through their own testimony, um, are able to really present these countries in this region as being terribly backward, right? So they have this sort of native informant role to play in this. And they all coordinate their work through conferences, through mutual support, through think tanks, through right-wing media, and so forth. And I explain all of that in uh, chapter seven of the book. So thank you for that question. But just very quickly on what, you know, uh, some of you have said as well. Um, how do we define race? How has race making changed in this uh, current moment? I mean, these are fantastic questions. I'll just say very quickly that one of the things about the withdrawal from Afghanistan is it is a fantastic defeat for U.S. imperialism. If nothing else, it shows that U.S. style occupation and militarism is no longer viable. And the ruling class has drawn this analysis as well. In fact, the Afghan papers, which were, you know, like the Pentagon papers from a few years ago, showed that top leaders knew that the Afghan war could not be won. And the question is, when were they going to withdraw and so forth? But the rhetoric around this has been so interestingly contradictory, right? On the one hand, there is all the sympathy for Afghan women. There is some and limited coverage of Afghan women themselves protesting, right? So finally, you see Afghan women as agents standing up and going to protests and so forth. But at the same time, and I hate watching television news, but every now and then I do. Um, but you see CNN using the same old tropes that they used back in 2001, which is soldiers carrying babies and holding them and passing them on to, you know, medics to take care of them, distributing bottles of water. And it's like this white man's burden. Never mind over one million people have been killed as a result result of, you know, U.S. militarism. So it's this contradictory mishmash where they cannot admit defeat, um, but at the same time sort of, you know, present themselves as saviors. Um, but finally, there's a third uh, dimension as well, which is these people are just not ready. 
right? It's, it's a story that was told in Iraq as well. Um, and it's a long held Orientalist myth is that these people are not prepared to enter the stage of democracy. They're still, you know, sort of uncivilized and barbaric. So all of those things sort of come together. Um, lastly, um, I, I want to say something at the Durban moment, and uh, Naomi brought that up, and, and the demands being reparation for slavery and settler colonialism and so forth. And I think that one of the things that myself and several other scholars, including Nadine, who uh, wrote the preface to the book and Nora mentioned, as well as Stephen Shiai and Junaid Rana and a bunch of others, have been arguing that it's important both for activists as well as for scholars to see anti-Muslim racism not as peripheral to these questions, right? It is not uh, secondary to uh, you know, the experience of slavery and settler colonialism, although those are foundational in the US context, but to see how much the war and terror has made these racism crisscross with one another in the way that Kianga explained how racial profiling became legitimated after 9-11 when it was used against brown swarthy men and so forth. So these connections are absolutely important and that starts with an understanding of anti-Muslim racism as racism and not just a misunderstanding or intolerance uh, or what have you. And even in the scholarly world, you know, critical terrorist, uh, I'm sorry, critical race studies uh, and critical race theory, which has come under a lot of attack, um, there isn't as much of a focus on the experience of Arabs, of South Asians, of Iranians, and so on, which tends to be a footnote typically. Um, and I feel like it's particularly over the last 20 years and for the foreseeable future, when US imperialism justifies itself through the ubiquitous terrorist threat around the world, sure, they may not do the uh, Iraq style and Afghan style occupations, but drone warfare, special operation forces, this is going to be the way of the future, even as the US pivots to uh, Asia and to China and so forth. And I think that's important to keep in mind and to understand all these racisms together, particularly if we're going to build solidarity and resistance against a, a system that ultimately benefits from racializing and separating various groups of people and turning them against one another. Uh, thank you, Deepa, for that um, for that response to many comments. Um, I'm just going to ask quickly. We only have three more minutes. If there's any other comments that people want to make uh, to each other, to each other's uh, responses. Okay, uh, then we're going to call it for the evening. Uh, thank you so much to all of you for an incredible discussion and incredible. Um, set of comments and commentary on uh, Deepa's book. Deepa, congratulations. Um, uh, the book is 40% uh, off, uh, so please get your copy now. Um, and I wish all of you a good day. And uh, yes, we all have our books here. Here we go. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.